So this is lesson 10 in our study on the person of Christ. I altered the schedule just a little bit. We weren't supposed to have class today originally, um, but we just couldn't get through uh, lesson 9 in, in one session. And so this worked out really nicely. I'm, I'm here able to divide this into two lessons. So this is lesson 10, part 2 on... Um, What's the chapter number? I don't have that written down. Let's see. Seven. Part two of chapter seven. So we'll be going over pages 131 through 144 uh, this morning. I've had a lot of positive feedback on this class. Uh, someone said to me, yeah, it, it, it's true. I thought I knew all that I needed to know about Christ. But when you begin to really press in and ask these detailed questions, you see, you know, we perhaps have some growing to do in the way that we speak of our Lord and Savior. Um, also, one thing that has come up again and again are questions about uh, the doctrine of man. So that might be a good future study for us. I, I don't know where to go for a real solid introductory resource on the doctrine of man. Um, I'll have to put some thought to that. But uh, like I said last week, you could see how this topic, we're continually kind of dipping into theology proper, the doctrine of God, the doctrine of the Trinity, which we've already considered. And we're also dipping into anthropology, the doctrine of man as revealed in Scripture with the question, what are we? What, what does it mean to be man? What is a human nature? Uh, so that might be an interesting study in the future. I'm not promising that it will be the next one, but maybe at some point in time we can uh, consider the doctrine of man in a, in a detailed way. Let's open in a word of prayer and then we'll move through Lesson 10. Father in heaven, we give you thanks for your faithfulness to us. You are kind to us. You are gracious to us. You have provided us with what we need to live here on earth. We enjoy the good things of this life that come from your hand. Above all else, you have provided us with salvation in Christ Jesus our Lord. I do pray that you would help us to understand who he is, what he is, and what he has done for us. I pray that our faith would be strengthened, also our love. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. I wanted to run through really quickly a review of the first part of this chapter. I, I, will, I will do it quickly. Uh, this chapter began with this observation that Christological orthodoxy is challenged today in two directions. It's always being challenged from outside the church with those who will deny the authority of Scripture uh, and challenge Christian doctrine, but Wellam focuses his attention in this chapter on the threats from within the church. Uh, Christological orthodoxy is challenged even from within the church today. He says that there are a spectrum of three views, uh, two revised, he calls them revised views, they deviate from the historic uh, creeds and confessions of the church in this regard, and he mentions ontological canonic Christology and functional canonic Christology, and then he presents the one historical view, uh, which is the one represented by Chalcedon and its later theological developments, which we've been considering uh, throughout this book. Uh, so this chapter is really devoted to considering ontological canonic Christology and functional canonic Christology. When we're talking about uh, canoticism, uh, we, I always want to say canoticism, I, my, my, that's where my mouth always wants to go. Canoticism, uh, when we're talking about this, we're talking about uh, Christ, uh, the Son of God, the eternal Son of God, uh, 
divesting himself of his divine nature or attributes in one way or another when he became incarnate. That's really what Canonicism teaches, that, uh, that, that the Son emptied himself, uh, not just in that he became incarnate or, or humbled himself, but he emptied himself of his divinity in one way or another. And ontological and functional canonic Christologies are present in the church today. Uh, canonic Christology today within evangelical theology broadly considered there is an unmistakable canonic influence uh, resulting in a spectrum of viewpoints. Again, he mentions uh, these two. And I want to review ontological canonic Christology with you really quickly. The word ontological is referring to that branch of metaphysics dealing with the nature of being. So ontological canonic Christology is, is really saying that um, there, there's a change within the divine nature. There's a change within the second person of the Trinity ontologically. It's a, it's a rather extreme view that uh, Wellam uh, critiques here, I think, effectively. Uh, he mentions uh, three points to give an overview of this position. First, OKC, uh, that's the abbreviation for it. Uh, these proponents insist that their view is orthodox because they affirm the Trinity, the, eternal, the, the Son's eternal preexistence, and Christ's deity and humanity. Yet, they argue that Chalcedon established only the broad boundaries of orthodoxy. For example, Chalcedon did not define nature or person, and thus these terms are open to redefinition. And so they, they, they fill these terms, nature and person, with different meanings than what they've historically had. Second, OKC proposes that in the incarnation, the Divine Son laid aside, that's what the word canonicism uh, refers to, laid aside, emptied himself of specific divine attributes, thus choosing to limit himself to a human life while retaining his divine nature. Remember, they, they make a sharp distinction between the divine nature and divine attributes, and, and, and we want to say, you can't do that with God. Uh, that's, that's not allowed. You can't do that with God. Within God, you cannot distinguish between his nature and his attributes. God is, and all that is in God is God. Third, OKC also redefines what a person is. So here is their tweaking of the, the, the word person. For OKC, a person is a distinct center of knowledge, will, love, and action. And so we talked about that last week, how when you, when you situate, when you seat uh, the mind, the will, and the affections in the person, it creates all sorts of problems. Uh, because then within God... And we confess that God is one, and yet there are three persons or subsistences within God. Then within God, you have three, three minds. You have three wills. Uh, we must situate mind, will, and affections within nature, within, within the nature of God and, and man. Um, affections being a, a, a human a thing and, and not a defined thing. But it's important that we... Um, Situate these things in nature and not in person as OKC does. And there are three implications of ontological canonic Christology. Uh, first of all, they have to reject the extra, which we have already considered. Do you remember what the doctrine of the extra is? Does anyone want to respond with an answer to that? What is the doctrine of the extra, oftentimes called the extra Calvinisticum? Anyone? No, no, not the adding on of the human nature. Sorry, Mom. The human nature, yet still possessing and full the divine nature. Yeah, it's the idea that when the 
eternal Son of God became incarnate, he was not he was not encapsulated within his humanity, but continued to exist as the second person of the Trinity, as God. So he took to himself a true human nature without ceasing to be what he always was. So that in the incarnation, the person of the Son is both experiencing a truly human life. Therefore, he's, according to his humanity, not omnipresent. And yet he's still omnipresent according to his divinity. He, he didn't cease as the second person of the Trinity. He did not cease to be what he always was, fully divine. He did not cease to be omnipresent, omniscient, omnipotent. He did not cease to be the sovereign one who preserves and upholds all things. That's the doctrine of the extra, which is oftentimes called the extra Calvinisticum. But OKC must reject that because, according to them, the Son laid aside some of these attributes. The Son laid aside some of these attributes, uh, emptied Himself, divested Himself of them when He became incarnate. And we would say that's, that's really a problem. And why is it a problem? Because we don't like it or because it doesn't fit with our way of thinking? No, it's a problem because it doesn't make sense of all of the biblical data. That's the issue. There are texts of Scripture that speak of Christ as upholding the universe still. So even in His humanity... Even in his incarnation, there's a sense in which the Son continues to uphold the universe by, by the word of his power. You see, does he do it according to his human nature? No. Does he do it according to his divine nature as he always has and always will? Yes. That's the doctrine of the extra, and OKC rejects it. Second, it entails that God has three distinct centers of consciousness, will and mind, contrary to orthodoxy which affirms that the divine persons are distinct but share the same capacity of will because they share the same nature. This goes back to the, 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 problem that, that the problems that arise when they situate or seat uh, the will in the person and not in the nature. In the moment that you situate the will, the capacity to will in the person, then you must confess that God has three wills because God has three persons. You understand, if you connect those two things together, then... God must have three wills, and yet we must confess that God has one will. He has one will because He has one nature, and that's where will, the capacity to will, is, is to be uh, situated. I'm moving quickly because this is all review, remember. Uh, third, OKC also rejects a staple of Trinitarian theology, namely the inseparable operations of the, the divine persons through one will. So in God there is one nature, there is only one God, eternally existing as three persons, and those three persons, those acting subjects, those subsistences, uh, all share the divine nature and all work through the divine nature. So there is one will. There is one will of God through whom the three persons of the triune God act. Um, these are the inseparable operations of the divine persons. And a lot of this is drawing upon the doctrine of theology proper, which we studied in a previous class. So although OKC affirms that Christ is one person in two natures, so they still use that orthodox language, its redefinition of these terms no longer reflects Chalcedon. And remember I went on a little bit of a rant last week about how this, this irks me when this happens and we have to be careful of it. And, and perhaps we've even been guilty of it ourselves from time to time. I'm not trying to say that we're above this error, but oftentimes those who promote false doctrine do so using... Orthodox terminology, orthodox phraseology. You understand? Uh, <laughs> wow. Um, yeah, I remember I went to the chiropractor 
um, a couple of weeks ago, and the chiropractor, my, she, she likes to talk to me about spirit. She knows I'm a pastor. She always kind of starts pressing me with questions. And <laughs> her, the door was open, and she begins to press me with questions about um, Mormons. And a friend of mine told me that they don't believe in Jesus. But don't they believe in Jesus? I didn't tell you this story, did I? I don't think so. But don't they, don't they believe in Jesus? And I say, well, they'll use that word, but they fill it with a totally different meaning. You, you understand, like they, they say the word Jesus, but their Jesus is, is substantially different from the Jesus of the Bible. So, no, they don't have faith in Jesus. And there's an IT tech guy working in her office, and he pokes his head in the door kind of angrily, you know. And he says to me, so do you believe that people are saved through faith in Jesus Christ alone and not by their works? I said, yes, I do. Well, that's what we believe. He's a Mormon, you know. I just look at him. I'm sorry I offended your IT guy. but And then she shuts her door, and we continue our conversation. Um, but I was able to explain to her that, so you can spit, off, you can spit out a phrase like that, Right? And the phrase itself is orthodox. It's, it's the same thing we would say. But every single one of those words, I know Mormon theology enough to know that every single one of those words, or just about every single one of them, it's the same word, but it's filled with different meaning. You know, so Jesus is different to them. The, the notion of faith is different to them. The notion of what it means to be justified is different to them. You understand? And, and it, things can get really tricky like this. And, and so you have to be aware of false teachings that dress up in the garb of orthodoxy, but substantially are erroneous. It, I mean, wolves in sheep's clothing. You, you understand? Wolves in sheep's clothing. Do not be surprised when the evil one is this crafty so as to bring us what appears to be truth, but... Inwardly, it's, it's nothing but falsehood. So would you say that the two versions we're looking at here in Gnosticism are heresy? And would keep some, I mean, is it similar, that similar to Mormonism? Or there, it's, I mean, it seems to me a pretty, pretty big deal here. Is it heretical? Uh, I would say yes, it's heretical. I, I'm a little slower to call people heretics. I'm a little quicker to refer to theology like this as being heretical and a little slower to use the word heretic, only because I wonder if people are ignorant and that's why they hold to this view. Will they persist? Will they amend their views once being confronted with the reality of the error, if that makes sense? But yes, it's, it's, a, it's, it's deviating from orthodoxy. Like the, these things, it's not as if we're in the process of working them through as the church, but this, these things have been wrestled with. And Orthodox statements have been presented. So yes, I would say these are heresies that need to be um, they need to be avoided, uh, and those who hold to these um, these views need to to amend their positions on them. And I can't remember if I shared this with you. Um, you know, I, I've grown close with Pastor Richard Barcelos up in Palmdale, um, and. He said something publicly that I really appreciated at the last pastor's conference 
uh, we're dealing with difficult Christological ideas in this pastor's conference. And there was a panel discussion where he said, you know, brothers, and it's mainly men and mainly pastors who are, who are in the room. You know, brothers, we, we've all taught heresy. I've taught heresy, he says. I thought, man, that's, <laughs> yeah, so that's quite a statement to make. Um, but I think it was really important for a seasoned uh, minister to say something like that. Because then he went on to say, but we were confronted with our error and we changed. And we corrected it. I thought that, you know, it's wonderful. So there has to be that spirit of humility. Uh, my doctrine, my, my view of the doctrine of Christ, my understanding of the doctrine of Christ five years ago isn't what it is today. I don't know that I taught heresy, but I know that I wasn't as strong as I am today on, on the doctrine of Christ. I don't know that I could have articulated Orthodox Christi- Christology in the way that I can now. So we're all in process, and I think it's important to remain, maintain that humble disposition. Yes, technically I think these are heresies because they do damage to the doctrine of Christ in such a way where it, they leave, these errors leave us without a Redeemer. If truly believed and consistently held to, and if, if we persist in them. That which is not assumed cannot be redeemed or healed, remember? I think you, 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 you really um, flesh these doctrines out and you see that these really undermine the very foundation of our salvation in Christ Jesus. Um, but, you know, it's strange. We need to be very dogmatic and yet humble all at once. It's okay. We can do that. Yeah. Were they not as congenial? I mean, they call our meetings heresy. Yeah, and I think it's fine to call these things heresy, but I'm talking about labeling someone heretic, either a brother or sister in Christ who believes in this way, or even a pastor who is uninformed who teaches this way. What I'm saying is that we need to call heresy, heresy. I think we need to reserve the word heretic, though, for those extreme cases where people teach this doctrine and they persist in it even after being corrected, you know, and and that's the point that I'm making. I'm not, you know, these errors that avert the foundation, that undermine the very foundation, need to be called heresy because they erode at the very foundation of our faith and our salvation in Christ Jesus. But I I see people throwing around the the term heretic, I think, a little too freely, you know, even to brothers and sisters in Christ who just haven't been given teaching like this, you know, and and they sound like they hold to some form of canonicism, and so we smash the label heretic on them. I I think it's a little uncharitable, and I I don't know if that's, I'd have to I'd have to look into it. I, I don't know that Calvin and others weren't as gracious. Um, yeah, Chad, did you have something? No. Oh, okay. Yeah, I wasn't planning to get into that whole subject there, but let, let's move on. 
No, it's not. It, it's, it's not your fault at all. It's a, it's a really good question. And it's something that I'm working through myself and have been, you know, frankly. So it's good for us to have these conversations. Well, let's move to the second part of this chapter then and discuss functional canonic Christology. Um, before going through this outline, I just, you know, ontological and functional. So ontological is going to have to do with the very nature of, of, of God. And so the second person of the Trinity empties himself of certain divine attributes. It's an ontological thing, you understand? It, it's an actual giving up of divine attributes that those who hold to this view are proposing. Um, and functional canonic Christology is, I guess, similar in some ways, but it tries to avoid that serious error. It, it tries to remedy the problem so that what, what the second person of the Trinity gives up, it's not an ontological thing, it's more of a functional thing. It has to do with his action. That's, that's what this teaching will ultimately be about. So here, Wellam contrasts this with classical Christology in four steps. First, regarding the divine nature, FKC, functional canonic Christology, insists with orthodoxy against ontological canonic Christology that the essential slash accidental distinction is illegitimate. The incarnation is not a subtraction of divine attributes. Do you remember that OKC made a distinction between essential attributes and non-essential or accidental attributes? Remember that? That's a part of their system. And then the question we ask, well, which of God's attributes are essential then and which are accidental? Could you explain that to us? And there's lots of disagreement because you can't do that with God. And, but most of them would say, well, any, any of God's attributes that don't agree with being human are accidental. Wow, that's something. So th- these are the accidental or non-essential attributes of God. Omniscience, omnipresence, omnipotence, the, all the omnis, etc., etc. You know, those are kind of a big deal. Um, so OKC, or FKC, rather, functional canonic Christology, is right to reject that idea. So they are in the right uh, camp with, with this. They agree with orthodoxy on this point. Second, regarding the person, FKC agrees with OKC against orthodoxy. A person is a distinct center of knowledge, will, and action. Will and mind are located in the person, not the nature. Hence, FKC's embrace of monothelitism, which we studied earlier. Many also equate person with soul. Many also equate person with soul. So they agree with OKC on this point. They situate mind, will, and action um, uh, in the person and not in, in nature. Third, regarding the incarnate son's exercise or functional use of his divine attributes. So there it is. See where the terminology is coming from. Regarding the incarnate son's exercise or functional use of his divine attributes, FKC differs from classic Christology. Specifically, FKC denies that the incarnate son continually exercises his divine attributes, such as sustaining the universe and performing miracles. Yet there is a spectrum of thought within FKC about how the son uses his divine attributes. Some say never, some say occasionally. On this point, FKC rejects the extra. So this is about the function, 
or the, the, the actions of the Son. And they would say that the eternal Son of God laid aside the, 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 what it means to function as God um, when He became incarnate. I hope that sounds problematic to you right away, you know, for Him to lay aside the, what it means to, to, to be God in action is not that different from saying that He's in fact laid aside these attributes Himself. Fourth, FKC is often associated with a spirit Christology. This is interesting. Um, and it's explained, I think, in these three subpoints here. The incarnate Son did not give up His divine attributes, but willed to renounce the exercise of His divine powers, attributes, prerogatives, so that He might live fully within those limitations. You see, that's really their goal. They, 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 want, <clears throat> they want to do away with this tension um, that exists when we think of the incarnation. They, you know, how could it be that the person of the Son can live a fully human life? They, they, they want to say that He lived a fully human life. As we'll see in just a moment, though, ironically, they end up undermining everything that is required for that to happen. So you see, though, He willed to renounce the exercise or the functioning of His divine powers, attributes, and prerogatives so that He might live a fully human life within uh, those limitations. The result, the incarnate Son chose to live His life totally circumscribed by His human nature. So He lived His life totally circumscribed by His human nature. That's why we say they, they must deny the extra. So the person of the Son lived a fully human life and gave up all that it meant to live as God. Um, no, no extra, no extra Calvinisticum here. When Jesus exercises His power, He acts by the Spirit, not the person of the Son acting according to His divine nature. That, that's really interesting. Um, earlier, earlier we, we did say that Christ lived a perfectly obedient human life because He was fully anointed by the Holy Spirit as the Messiah. He's the anointed one. So the Holy Spirit fully anointed Jesus the man to enable him to live a perfect human life. But this is different. Uh, this is saying that when Jesus exercises his power, things that we, we would attribute to his divine nature acting, they will say that in fact he does all of that by the Spirit. By the Spirit. Um, so it's the Spirit who is accomplishing these miracles, doing these miracles. It's the Spirit who's raising Lazarus from the dead. Uh, and what you end up with, it's kind of interesting. You, you actually end up with the person of the Son almost being erased from the incarnation altogether. And it's the, it's the person of the Spirit who is the acting subject in the incarnation. And yet we know that's not true. Who became incarnate? Who is the acting subject in the incarnation? Not the Father, nor the Spirit, but the Son. It's the person of the Son acting and when we see him do things that are, you know, beyond the ability of humans to do it, it it's him working through his, through the divine nature, through the divine nature. That's what orthodoxy says. But uh, this spirit Christology, as Wellam calls it, it's a different idea altogether. It's that it's the person of the spirit who is uh, doing the work. Because after all, according to functional canonic Christology, uh, the person of the Son renounced 
divested himself of all of his ability to act as God and was fully, uh, what's the word that was used here, circumscribed uh, by his human nature. Uh, they want um, they want the person to live a fully human life, so they're trying to create a system where this makes sense to them. But I think they end up um, ruining everything in the process, and, and we'll see this in just a moment. Any questions on that point before I move on to this critical reflection on evangelical canonicism, which is kind of a critique of everything that's been presented? Yes? So, when, you know, you're, normally you're, you hear the teaching, like, when Jesus was baptized and the Spirit ascended in like a dove. So, you know, typically you hear that taught as, you know, he was then empowered for ministry to, to do his, 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 his ministry. And, and um, so, so then what, with, with that taken in mind, and I agree with what you're saying, what was that purpose other than just God affirming that this, this is my son, like the, the, the threefold, the Trinity being expressed in that moment? Right. Yeah, the, when, when, um, when Mary conceived, she was conceived by the power of the Holy Spirit. Right. You know? So I, I don't think we want to say that Christ was in that moment, at age 30, let's say, right. for the first time anointed um, by, by, the, by the Holy Spirit as the Messiah. Right. It's not as if that was the first time that Christ was to be considered as God's beloved Son. You know, he, he was God's beloved Son from the moment of conception, considered according to his humanity. So I think at his baptism, Christ is being marked off as the Messiah. He's being marked off as God's great high priest. He's being in that moment washed ceremonially as God's great high priest, the, the high priest of the, the priest of the new covenant. Um, so I, yeah, I think we would want to avoid the idea that Christ was anointed with the Holy Spirit in that moment only. But yes, there is something significant about the beginning of his public ministry as the Messiah and his baptism and the anointing of the Holy Spirit have something to do with that for sure. Does that make sense? Yeah. yeah. Because he lived a sinless life uh, before that. And of course, that's because it's the person of the Son working through the human nature. But I, I, I think we would want to say that the Holy Spirit was involved in the human nature, in the anointing of the human nature of Christ from the moment of conception. I, I can think more about it, um, but it, it's an interesting thought, Chad. Do you think it's it's more common for people to just be ignorant of <clears throat> like the proper way to just explain this doctrine versus actually holding to a heretical view? Yes, and that's kind of the point that I was making earlier um, about when to apply the label heretic, because I think, well, I mean. If we were all really honest, I think we would probably say, yeah, I was, my, my thinking was, for most of us at least, my thinking was pretty sloppy on this subject about three weeks ago. <laughs> well, because I've never heard of anybody teaching any of these other, or these false doctrines that you're talking about now that we're discussing. Like, I feel like maybe that's like on like a higher intellectual, like, yes. Well, if you, if you go through this book and you uh, pay attention to the footnotes, which I haven't drawn your attention to, you'll see professors listed who teach at seminaries that you would not consider to be heretical. 
they're pretty conservative. And their views are being critiqued here in this book. In this book. You, you are right. I don't think very many pastors teach, period. They, they, they don't teach, it, it's not like pastors in, in most evangelical churches are teaching on the subject of Christology at all. So yes, it's the views of those professors who are teaching in seminaries and who are writing books that are being critiqued. But nevertheless, those views of those um, professors at schools that you would probably consider to be pretty conservative they do find their way into the minds of pastors who end up shepherding churches. And I think over the process of time, even if this stuff isn't directly taught, the impression is given that the eternal Son of God divested himself of his divine attributes in some way. It's never said, perhaps, in a direct manner. But through the way that men preach and pray, right? And that's the challenging thing, is to be consistent not only in, in when I'm... It's, it's one thing to be consistent when I'm going through an outline that I drew from this guy. It's another thing to be consistent in my Christology as a pastor when I'm preaching and I'm praying. Well, you just had to do that a second ago. You said, like, Jesus wasn't anointed at, at his baptism, but at his birth. But then you said, according to the human nature. Because he was always anointed as the Messiah. Right. Yeah, and, and, and there's ways of talking about Christ that are more and less precise, that are both orthodox. You, you know what I'm saying? Like, even the scriptures do this. We've talked about it. Um, when the scriptures say that, that God bled for his church, my paraphrase, that's true, but we have to say according to his human nature. You know, and so. I just think in evangelicalism in general, there's a lot of ignorance on this subject. And I'm not saying that, I'm not trying to be insulting there. I'm just saying there's a lot of a lack of teaching, a lot of false assumptions that we've all just kind of picked up along the way. And therefore, that's why I think we need to distinguish between heresy and heretic. Um, I mean, when men are in the ministry and they're preaching from the pulpit, they're going to be held, they're going to be, they're going to have to give an account. Like, I don't want to deny that. But even then, I think it, you know, even to pastors, I think, to say to them, you know, I, th- I think you're, you're a little off here. And hopefully they have the humility to reconsider their position and to tighten it up. You know, I would want someone to be gracious to me like that, you know. Um, but let's try to make it through this lesson again. Um, I joke. It, it's a great question. I appreciate it. Um, and I've, I've gone off on tangents. Uh, so part three, critical reflections on evangelical canonicism. Now that's what Wellum calls it just evangelical canonicism in its different forms. Um, it's, he's comparing it here with the Chalcedonian definition. Again, it's a redefinition of nature and person in both instances to some degree. OKC's redefinition of nature and its Christological implications. Okay, so here's a critique of ontological canonic Christology's redefinition of nature and its Christological implications. First, OKC offers a logical way of speaking of Christ's deity, but not a biblical way. I, I appreciate that. I'm trying to make sense of this in your head, logically, and that's fine, but it has to not only make... It not, the system does not only have to work in your head, it has to work when compared with Scripture. You understand? 
I think a lot of Christians get into trouble with this. They want to make sense of things that are pretty mysterious, and so they'll come up with doctrinal systems that make sense up here, but it, it just doesn't square with what the Word of God says. Uh, so it's a good critique here. Second, OKC's essential accidental distinction is arbitrary and inconsistent. We've talked about this. You can't make this distinction within God between essential and accidental attributes. All that is in God is God. He is one we, we have attributes in a different way. You, you understand this, right? Um, you're a human. You're a person. You, you have body and soul. You have mind, will, and affections within the soul. But you have varying, you, you have, we all have different attributes. We all have different qualities to us. Some are more or less patient, let's say. You know. and, and so that works within humanity. It doesn't work within God. He, he's, he's perfect in His being. You understand, like all, all of his attributes are possessed with perfection. They don't change. And you can't, God can't give up any of his attributes and, main, and, main, and, be, and be God still. Okay, so it doesn't work. Third, OKC cannot affirm that the incarnate Son is homoousios with the Father and the Spirit if the Father and Spirit retain all the divine attributes. So homoousios, of the same, of the same nature. If OKC is correct, that the Son divested Himself of some of His attributes when He became incarnate. Is the Son therefore still homoousios of the same nature with the Father and the Spirit? We have to say no, because they still have these attributes, and now the Son doesn't. The Son has changed. It's a major problem. Uh, so He's not the same as the Father and the Spirit, if in fact this theory is true. Fourth, OKC undercuts the continuity between the eternal word and the incarnate word, thus implying change in the eternal triune relations of the persons. So if the word changed when he became incarnate, then God has changed, you see. And that runs counter to what the scriptures teach, which is that God cannot change. Fifth, OKC cannot account for the cosmic functions of the incarnate Son. And here he has listed 1 Corinthians 1.17 and Hebrews 1.3. Uh, the scriptures do talk about the Son upholding the universe even still. So he didn't give up that, that um, function uh, when he became incarnate. Uh, that's why we have the doctrine of the extra, and OKC has to deny it. Colossians 1.17 and Hebrews 1.3. Not only did God the Father create the world through the Son and by the Spirit, but the Son has upheld the world and continues to uphold the world by His power. That did not cease when he became incarnate. Let's look now at functional canonicism's redefinition of person and its Christological implications. Since FKC rejects OKC's view of the divine nature, it's able to uphold Christ's full deity, yet we still must evaluate whether FKC is a better option by thinking through its view of person. Okay, So FKC is better than OKC. It is. It's better. It's less extreme but is it better than orthodox Christology as stated by Chalcedon? We say, no, it errs. For canonicism, person is defined as a distinct center of knowledge, will, and action. But how then do we account for Jesus' growing in knowledge, Luke 2.52, if in Christ there is one divine person, the Son, who has one divine will and mind? It's a very good question. And Wellam says more about this in his book. You, you have to read. I'm just summarizing it here, you see. But, but let, let's just think of it. If, if the mind and will and action are situated in the person, 
How many persons are there in Christ? One, and who is He? The eternal Son of God. And yet the Scriptures tell us that He grew in knowledge. So if we situate the mind and the will, and the affections, within the Son, then we have the eternal Son of God growing in what? Knowledge. That, that, should, say, that should sound strange to you. Did, the, did Jesus grow in knowledge? Yes. How? According to His human nature, which is where we are to seat the faculties of mind, will, and affections. In fact, I've hinted at this before. The faculty of affections does not belong to God properly. The Son of God does not have that faculty of affections that we're here talking about. You and I have affections as human beings. We are moved by things external to us, not true of God. So to to take the mind, will, and affections that are proper only to human beings and to place them in the person means that with Christ we're placing it within the divine person and we're reading all of that up into the Godhead, the eternal Godhead. It's a problem. So this, this redefinition of person creates lots, lots of problems. That's what Wellam is wanting us to see. Three weaknesses of FKC. First, FKC has difficult accounting for how Scripture presents Christ's divine action in His life and ministry. For example, His miracles are not merely Spirit-empowered acts. They are also divine acts that identify Him as the Lord. So when Christ does His miracles, He does not do them in the same way that maybe prophets of old did them, you know, as God is doing the acts through them to demonstrate their validity. But, but Christ Himself is doing these acts to prove that He Himself is the Lord. Read the Gospels and see. It's quite clear. These miracles He performed were not for no reason. I mean, and even when Christ healed, certainly the person who was healed was benefited greatly, and there the love and mercy of God was manifest. But it was more about the physical healing of the person. It was a demonstration that Christ is the Lord, that this is God with us. And the Jews understood that, and they killed Him. You understand? Because he made himself out to be God. Okay, so these were not merely spirit-empowered acts. They were divine acts. These are acts uh, that are done by the person of the Son through, according to his divine nature. FKC, contrary to Scripture, denies that the Son continually exercises his divine attributes. It also surrenders the unity of Trinitarian agency and results in affirming a change in the content of the personal deity of the Son. I'm now in the process of rushing through the remainder of this outline, so bear with me. Second, FKC introduces further Trinitarian problems. For, for example, many advocates believe that the role of the Spirit in the life of Christ is the key to making sense of the Incarnation. They propose that the Son either never or rarely exercises His divine attributes. Instead, all or most of Christ's unique actions were done by the Spirit and not Him. Yet, in such a view, what happens to the agency of the Son in His actions? That's the question. Yet, in such a view, what happens to the agency of the Son in His actions? It's as if the Son disappears and the acting agent is the Spirit. I mentioned this earlier. According to this view, it's almost like it is the Spirit who became incarnate and not the Son, you see, because the Son 
it said he does not act according to, the, to his divine nature. Now all of his actions that we would properly attribute to his divine nature have to be attributed to the acting of the Spirit. It's almost as if the Son is just wiped out of the Incarnation altogether. Uh, this is more of a conclusion here now um, to this little section. What is needed is a return to classic Trinitarian orthodoxy. The Son is the acting subject of both natures. The subject from whom the Spirit proceeds according to the Trinitarian order and the subject who receives the Spirit in His humanity. In this way, the Divine Son alone assumes a human nature, but that nature is simultaneously filled by the Spirit. Christ's humanity receives the Spirit who proceeds from the Father and the Son, and this reception of the Spirit allows Christ to live and to act as a man by the Spirit's action on Christ's human nature, so that in His humanity the Divine Son can redeem us as our representative covenant head and substitute. That's beautifully stated. So yes, Christ is anointed with the Holy Spirit beyond measure as a man, as the Messiah, as the second Adam, as our great High Priest. Nevertheless, it is the person of the Son who does also work through His divine nature when we see Him performing miracles like calming the seas, or healing the sick, or raising the dead. Or claiming to have the power to forgive sins. Third, given FKC's redefinition of person, its pronouncements undercut what they claim best, <laughs> best to preserve, namely Christ's full humanity like our own. I think this is exactly it. They, they want to, they want to uh, maintain Christ's full humanity, but in this system they actually undercut it entirely because if they equate person with soul, or if they situate the mind, will, and affections in the person, uh, then it's the person of the Son who is not only acting through the, um, the, the incarnation, but replaces the soul of man, in fact. You see. Uh, so you don't have a, a fully human Jesus at that point. Uh, you, you have monothelitism. You, you, have, um, you have the person of the Son um, doing everything that our, our human nature does, uh, when in fact we need to see that it's the person of the Son acting through two complete natures, the divine and the human. I stammered through that a little bit because partly I'm rushing. Third, given F... Yes, uh, I just read that, number one and two, by equating person with soul, by placing the faculty slash capacities of will and mind in the person. Uh, that's what I just said. So, let's move to a conclusion here. Although... Canonicism claims it can account for Christ's full humanity better than the classical view. It actually undercuts it. B, we are back to what the early church contended for in the famous words of Gregory of Nazianzus, what is not assumed is not healed. And then C, only if Christ possesses a distinct will, soul, and mind can He render human obedience to God in our place. We need a Christ whose humanity is like ours except sin. We need a Christ whose humanity is like ours except sin. I hope this is clear to you. If it's the person of the Son, the divine person of the Son, who is acting according to His mind, will, and affections, then Jesus Christ did not have a humanity like ours, you see. Um, it, it's a different kind of mind, will, and affections that are at play, um, as if God Himself could even have affections like ours. Um, so we need to refer, return to classical Christological orthodoxy in this regard. Um, I went a little bit long. Any real quick questions uh, before we dismiss? 
I hope you're enjoying this. I'm sure it feels like it's, you're, you're swimming in it. I, I'm sure it, you, 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 I would imagine you leave here and, you know, things are cloudy again. That, that's normal. I've rushed through a very important chapter. Please read. Please reread. Um, and I think over time, as we continue to talk about this stuff with precision, things will grow more and more clear in, in all of our minds uh, together. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for the wisdom of the incarnation and of our salvation uh, through Christ our Lord. Uh, we thank you that you have provided us with a Redeemer who on the one hand could uh, experience life fully, be tempted for us, overcome all temptation, be obedient to you as the second Adam. We thank you that you have provided us with a Redeemer who is like us in this regard, yet without sin. We thank you that Christ was able to do all of this because it was the person of the Son acting through Him. We ask that you would help us to understand Him, O God, and to grow to love Him more and more. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.